Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me on Jen Taylor Rerouting. My goal is that every guest becomes a friend and I feel truly blessed to know the people that I've interviewed. If you want to know more information about me from being a guest on this show to my virtual assistant services for podcasters, or perhaps you want to be a published author, I have coaching and ghostwriting services for that. You can find everything that you want to know on jentaylor.net. Remember to give a shout out, share, like, Give me some feedback on all of my interviews. I'm happy to join in on the conversation with you. Have a great day. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing someone that I've actually met through the podcasting world, Devin Truby. Devin, how are you today? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm great. And today is your first interview ever. We're pretty excited about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, Devin, you and I met. I met you and your wife at mm -hmm. a podcast event recently here in Reno. And uh, the person who was heading it said, hey, there's a couple over there and they also have a podcast on Live in Reno. So I went over and accosted you. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys have a couple shows. You have a podcast where you and your wife review shows that are streaming like Netflix or yeah. Amazon Video. Okay. Tell me, tell me about your podcasts. So uh, that's the Streamer's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, we, we do just that. Uh, we're primarily hitting up on... Um, a lot of Netflix right now, uh, just because we're hearing from from folks on social media that not as many people have uh, Amazon Video and Hulu and things like that. Uh, we're both really big uh, movie buffs and TV buffs, uh, so we we figured we'd try go at it. We're we're pretty heavy podcast listeners uh, as well, so it was cheap to get into it, and we're having a lot of fun with it. And actually, you could jump in probably and we can do an interview on just on starting podcasts and supporting <laughs> that because you and I have shared information on that. Well, what do you think of this? And then you have another podcast where you actually play Dungeons and Dragons called Rocks Fall, Everyone Dies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that, that title is actually a, it's kind of a, an old Dungeons and Dragons like stereotypical when a dungeon master is tired of the party. He's like, oh, well, rocks fall, everybody dies. Um, so yeah, we play, uh, some friends, uh, Sarah and Brandon, their brother and sister, they, they play Dungeons and Dragons with us and I'm the dungeon master. <laughs> this is my first time as playing that role as well. So it's, it's weird. And we try our best to not make a mockery of a game that everybody loves. Uh, but it's, we're having fun with it. That's awesome. Now your day job, because people don't realize that we are not rich podcasters. <laughs> if, if only, if only. <laughs> Your day job is in social work. So yeah. you work for a nonprofit. I used to work in a, in a nonprofit very similar. Yours is High Sierra Industry. So tell me a little yep. bit about that. So High Sierra Industries, we've uh, been around. We actually just had our 40th anniversary as an organization. Uh, but we, we teach uh, a lot of things. But uh, we work with adults with the developmental and um, physical disabilities. Uh, my... Uh, my department is the I Choose program within High Sierra Industries, and we teach life and social skills. So that's anything from 
uh, basic hygiene routines all the way up to some career readiness uh, skills. It's so interesting when you meet people how much the seven degrees of separation comes in. I didn't get my degree in social work. That's uh -huh. where I was headed, but I was a supervisor of a nonprofit for foster kids that were treatment level, and my son's autistic and in independent living. So, like, our uh -huh. paths have totally could have crossed <laughs> a million times yeah. outside of podcasting. So, I'm, we're going to jump in and go back a little bit. I like to kind of keep things chronologically or in order, but we're going to touch base on the decision, why you made the decision to get into social work, which I think is pretty powerful. Gotcha. So, Devin, you were born in rural Nevada. Tell me about that and what that was like. <laughs> I've seen it, but other people haven't. So um, if you picture a vast desert um, and then put in a couple brothels and a gun store and uh, some construction crews and then a couple of uh, uh, fabric prefabbed homes and you've got a lot of rural Nevada, the wonderful people, but that's a lot of rural Nevada. Um, more specifically to the, the brothel point, I, <laughs> I grew up in Lyon County, which is one of the only two counties in the state that allows um, legalized prostitution. Um, I grew up right down the street from the Bunny Ranch. So, uh, that's, Fantastic. I've seen the Bunny Ranch. I haven't visited there myself, but <laughs> heard great things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think in rural Nevada, the only other thing that you miss that's in some of rural Nevada is mining. Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot of mining, particularly out in um, uh, sort of the, there used to be a lot of mining out in the Dayton area, yeah. uh, but now there's a lot of mining out in the Elko area. So this is really literally prefab homes, um, kind of, it looks like trailers. It looks very run down, salt, salt of the earth, hardworking people. Yeah. And that's where you grew up. So how big was the town? Oh, well, I grew up in a town called Mound House, and for any Nevada listeners here, if you haven't heard of it, you're not alone. Uh, there, it had about 200 people in it. Um, until 2012, we didn't even have a sign on the road that said, welcome to Mound House. Uh, on maps, we were known as SR341, which was the junction to go up to Virginia City from Highway 50. So, uh, yeah, it's not big at all. Really not big. How big was the school? So I actually, um, Mount House wasn't big enough to have a school. So we were bussed out to Dayton, which was the neighboring town. Um, I had, it was less than a thousand. Um, all three of the schools were right next to each other. And my graduating class had about 120 people, if that. Okay, that's actually yeah. bigger than I thought. But yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so not, and that's, uh, those were the, at the time, the high school I graduated from was the only high school in that part of Lyon County. So there was a whole bunch of different areas that were being funneled into that high school. Right. And that's a lot less expensive than building a new school in a yeah. small area. Right. Yeah. I, I grew up in Vermont and a lot of that, and I lived in Alaska, very similar rural mentality that yeah. we have here in Nevada. So your mom and dad met and got married and he had two children from a previous relationship and she adopted them. Yeah. So uh, my, my dad's uh, first wife um, was a pretty heavy drug user and she ended up abdicating her parental rights. So my mom stepped in and, and adopted them. And tell me a little bit about them, the, your, your sister and brother. 
Oh, okay. So um, my sister is six years older than me. I'm the youngest of the three, obviously. Um, but uh, she is um, pretty pretty unscathed physically from from uh, the stuff that went on when they were kiddos. Um, but uh, she is now also working with adults with disabilities out in Carson City. Uh, she has a daughter. She's 11. Uh, our, yeah. Nope, actually just turned 12. <laughs> yeah, she just turned 12. And my brother actually, um, he just got married and is living out in Herlong, California. And that's pretty phenomenal. Oh, right by the prison. Is that where uh, it is? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, there's a prison out there. I don't know how I have useless facts in my brain, but I do. <laughs> so it's pretty astounding. He just got married. And tell me a little bit about him because he is, a, he's, um, a good example of what we find in these drug use families. Yeah. So, so I mentioned the part about my, my sister being unscathed, unscathed fairly physically uh, from, from that relationship with her biological mother. Uh, but my brother was not, uh, was not as fortunate. He was, uh, she tried to abort him in utero um, by taking all sorts of stuff. Um, but he, he survived luckily. And he ended up with a diagnosis of, uh, moderate intellectual disability. He has spina bifida, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, um, you know, a bunch of undiagnosed neuromuscular um, difficulties as well. But he's astounding. He's, he's one of the reasons why I do what I do. Um, and yeah, I'm really proud of him. He's a, he's a really good guy. And I do want to talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the people that influence you enough. But I know he was one of the reasons that you decided to get into the career that you've gotten into. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's phenomenal. You're right. Lucky for you guys that he lived. And it's amazing how affected these kids of drug use parents can be. I, I've adopted five kids. And so through wow. foster care, it, it's, a, it's a mess out there. Yeah. So yeah. I work with the kids and then you're working with the same, the same demographic of adults. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily all all victims of of drug abuse and things like that, but but yeah. Yeah. So you you your parents got married, your mom adopted those two kids. Kudos to her. And then you were born. Yay! Yeah. And and tell me about I mean growing up in rural Nevada in a town of 200. Tell me about your family dynamic growing up. Ah, uh, so dynamic. So my um my mother is also the youngest in her family. Um, she was born with cerebral palsy and, um, my grandfather was, was very protective of her. So out of all the kiddos that my mom had three other siblings, um, out of all, out of all of my grandparents' children, my, they were most protective of my mother. So they actually, uh, my grandfather had the luxury of, um, being able to buy a bunch of property out in, in Mound House because he had a fairly successful construction company. Um, and he built homes on adjacent properties and on the property that he lived on with my grandmother for all of his kiddos. So we grew up, um, I grew up with a, within a stone's throw of all my family. Um, so it was nice. I mean, we had a, essentially a multi-generational family all in the same spot. So I was able to get a lot of access to my, my maternal family at least. Um, so that was, it was a wonderful learning experience for me because I was, I was kind of a sick kid. I had childhood asthma. Okay. So I spent, a, I spent a lot of time with my family. So I, this is like, 
a fantasy to have a big plot of land <laughs> with a couple different, you know, because I, when you have kids and you don't want to be too far away and you see them struggling and the cost of living's higher, I'm like, I want that yeah. exact situation, but maybe not in rural Nevada. But I yeah, love we, <laughs> we were actually one of the first families in Mound House. Uh, my grandparents bought the land out in 1973 okay. uh, because. Uh, because of my mother, uh, she, they had heard of a, an equine um, therapy program up here in Northern Nevada, and they moved from LA up here specifically for that. It's a phenomenal program that's linked yeah. to UNR. It's phenomenal. So yeah, we're very blessed to have that. That's amazing. So you were a pretty sick kid. You're surrounded by multi-generations, which was really, that's a blessing, I think. I, th I think so too. Yeah. And you were pretty sick because you had asthma. Was that because of when you were born? Was it that just a fluke? Um, I actually had um, underdeveloped lungs for a bit. <laughs> so, uh, so that kind of led to chronic bronchitis, asthma, things like that. Right. And the lungs are the last thing to develop. And so if you're going to have an issue, that's probably where it's going to land. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about mom and dad. Growing up, you, you mentioned your mom was born with uh, cerebral palsy. We can touch on that later a little bit, but more okay. your parents as moms and dads. Got you. Um, so my mom was always there. She didn't, um, she didn't work. She just, she stayed with the kids, uh, with us kids and uh, did the homemaker job. Um, my father wasn't ever really around. I didn't, I didn't actually get to know my dad until a couple of years ago. Um, because of a bunch of stuff, but um, their interactions, I mean, fairly far and few between looking back at it as an adult, it seemed to be kind of a, kind of an odd marriage. Like there was, I think there was love there. Um, we just didn't really ever see a lot of it um, because it was mainly just us kids with our mom. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really uh, more interactions with my grandparents, honestly, than my father. Uh, so it was really kind of a co-parenting model between my grandparents and my mother, um, as opposed to my mother and my father. Which is not a bad thing. Your, no. Your grandfather, yeah. I know, Charlie. Yes. Um, who's your mom's dad and the one that, that set up this whole commune situation. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, he was really very involved in a very, in a positive role model. Oh, yeah. Rare and wonderful. Everything was family first with Grandpa Charlie. Yeah. So tell me about dad. And I know you, you said you just got to know him a couple of years ago. So kind of tell me that process and what happened there. So uh, my mom divorced my dad in 2000, uh, late 2007. It was right after I graduated high school. And he moved back up to Oregon with, uh, with his family because all of my paternal family is out in Oregon. I have a few out here that I still keep in touch with, but I largely didn't know my dad's family growing up, um, much like I never really interacted with, with dad. And uh, so he moved back to Oregon with them. And seven years later, uh, so 2014, um, it was actually my wife that kind of pushed me into... Um, into to reconnecting because my my sister had stayed connected with him but um, i i didn't it was just the last couple of years with him were just awful so i just tried my best to stay distant and um you know my wife finally convinced me and she basically said when he dies and you haven't at least said your piece with him you're gonna regret it 
and I thought about it. At first I told her, nah, I'm good, I'm good. And I thought about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized as usually goes, my wife was right. And uh, uh, so I, I reached out, he happened to be up here for Thanksgiving with my sister's family. Um, so I decided to stop by, yeah. So why was he so unavailable? Did you, do you remember things specifically growing up and you said the last couple of years were awful? Do you remember the specifics of the situation? Yeah, so my dad was a fairly heavy drug user. Um, I don't think I realized that until probably my early teenage years. Um, he just wasn't ever there. He had um, the, the three acre property that we grew up on. He had a, like a camper shell sort of deal that was attached to a, an antique truck that my great grandfather had left to, to him. And he'd spend a lot of time in there. He'd have people over and stuff like that all in there. So I thought it was weird. Like my mom explained it to me like, Oh, your dad's got a clubhouse. Um, <laughs> so that was when I was really little. And I didn't realize till later that that's kind of like his, I mean, for lack of a better term, like his, his meth den. <laughs> and, um, so all those, all of his cronies that were overdoing, they were, that's what they were doing in there. And he just, if it wasn't that, he just wasn't home. He was out at other folks' homes. Um, he'd tell the family he was going on business trips and then go on week-long benders in Oregon and California and stuff like that. So, um, but the last couple of years, um, he was fairly verbally aggressive. Um, some, I mean, I never saw anything, but, um, I get the feeling that uh, there may have been some physical stuff with my mom. Uh, so those are really the major reasons why I didn't, um, didn't want to keep in contact because quite frankly, I was just so angry internally, um, which is not a good thing, by the way, <laughs> don't, for all the listeners out there, don't hold that, don't hold that shit in. It's awful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't. But I mean, contacting your dad, you don't have to go zero to 60 either. You can deal with a lot yeah. of stuff in other ways and we are going to talk about some of that too um you know you can you can build an arsenal a toolbox of things to get you through things therapy whatever works for for people i don't care if you meditate or do yoga but you can get through that anger without having to address that person but you ended up addressing him so how has it been since then it's been it's been nice i'm tentative about stuff still uh just because for 18 years he was this one person and now he's this totally different person. Um, he moved up to Oregon and his father passed away. Um, and we've had, you know, he had some other family member pass away as well due to their, you know, illicit activities and things like that. And uh, he started going to church. He actually remarried very recently. Um, he seems to be doing better. He's lost some weight. He's, he doesn't seem like he's on any sort of drugs at the moment. And he's wanting to, wanting to stay connected. So I'm, I'm giving him that bridge. Okay. That's, that's pretty astounding. That's a very difficult thing for an adult to do when as a child you lived through some of that abuse sort of situation. Um, so kudos to that. You're, <laughs> my father did pass away before and I did try to connect and it, and it was just a disaster. And so I was okay not connecting at that point. And then he did pass away. And, you know, so it's good that you're, you've at least, that he was willing, I guess. Your willingness, that's <laughs> great. That's amazing. But, you know, it has to go both ways. I think so too. 
And a lot of these um, adults, we're in a kind of a generational where a lot of our parents were alcohol and drug abusers. And so it's hard for us to reach out when we do. It's sometimes impossible for them to do it back. So it's a pretty amazing thing. So you're growing up, you have asthma a lot. Otherwise, except for rural Nevada, pretty standard life. Yes and no. I think, I think looking back, I didn't have a bad childhood. Um, I had a very stressful childhood. Okay. So that's what I want to jump into right there. Lay it on me. <laughs> so I was diagnosed in the sixth grade uh, with a uh, generalized anxiety disorder. Um, I, there was just, on my grade, I went to school. I, my, my grades started to slip. I ended up, you know, I, there was some self-isolation looking back that was happening. And I, my, my mom noticed something was wrong and she took me into the doctor and I got, I, I was diagnosed with the generalized anxiety disorder. Um, stress is something that I've, I've learned to deal with my whole life. It's still there. Um, definitely not to the point where I'm having panic attacks in the middle of my English class, but, uh, it's, it's still there. And, and I was, I was okay taking the medication at the time. Uh, but I was very cognizant that I needed to find alternative means to handle my own stress because even as, even as a kid, I didn't want to become dependent because I saw, uh, I saw my dad taking things and I saw his friends taking things and now all of a sudden I was taking things and I don't think I really drew, um, a distinction between the two, uh, until later, but in my, in my childhood mind, uh, I was now doing the things that my father was doing and I knew those things were bad. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's pretty heavy because they're not the same thing, but like you like you said, your childhood mind, it's pretty amazing also in sixth grade. Well, I, I can understand because of, because you felt that way, um, you wanted to find alternatives because it's pretty amazing as a sixth grader that you're thinking, I need to figure out a way other than medication to get through this. Yeah. Um, I credit a lot of that kind of higher order thinking to my grandfather uh, because I did spend a lot of time with him as a child and, and I learned a lot like how to be, I mean, I was essentially um, my mom looking back, she said you were essentially an adult by the time you hit middle school. Uh, and I, I credit that to my grandfather, honestly. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I would have called you after meeting you one time, you know, <laughs> now we're BFFs. Uh, I would have called you like an old soul. The, the person that grows up fast, because that's kind of intuitively yeah. who you are. I, I get that a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm only 28. Um, I feel terribly old, not, <laughs> but, but, uh, um, but I, I get that a lot. I get that I'm still young and I, I have a lot of responsibility with jobs and all that stuff. But uh, I do, a lot of people looking back have, have said that about me. Yeah, I can see that. So you were on medication and you saw a therapist and that kind of went away. Did you stop taking the medication? Did mom take you off of it? <laughs> so a couple of different things happened with that. So uh, if my mom ever hears this, she's probably gonna be really mad at me. But uh, there was a, a window in the master bathroom to our house that I would just kind of throw them out <laughs> when she'd given them to me. Oh, so <laughs> they would spill inadvertently. Yeah. spill out. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, that would happen sometimes. I mean, I'd take them sometimes. Uh, but, I mean, it was really uh, me just wanting to, I just, I just didn't want to take them, honestly. 
But, and I can understand that. Um, it, it's scary as a kid who watches your parents and you don't want to become like that. Yeah. And that's still like, if I'm having like stress nightmares, that's kind of the thing where like, you know, you're walking around your house and you look in a mirror and like, Oh shit, you're your dad. And it's, that's, it's rough sometimes, but, uh, I think I've mostly moved past it. So you, you were kind of, you left, you stopped seeing the therapist, you kind of dumped the pills. So you were kind of left to deal with it on your own because what was put in place wasn't happening. And yeah. you, you kind of just like a lesson from your grandfather, you just, you moved forward through all that. Yeah. So one of the things that, uh, one of my, my personal heroes, um, as well, I also read a lot. So this is, this plays into it as well. I'm, I'm a, I'm an, I'm a huge reader. And one of the things that I was, uh, into reading when I was a kid was biographies. And I actually read the biography of Teddy Roosevelt. Of course you did. And his, his whole fa- the whole Roosevelt family mantra is forward. And so I just wanted to move forward. Um, so that, that played a lot into it. Uh, I think that helped quite a bit. That's amazing. I mean, I have six, I've had six graders and that's, I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> so your whole goal what, over the next few years, so I'm guessing like sixth grade to maybe senior year in high school, because I know you had events your senior year in high school too. Um, yeah. That you are trying to figure out a ways to calm yourself down, because this is anxiety. This is like intense, you know, what, what were your anxiety attacks like? Um, I mean, just generalized panic. Like I you know, shortness of breath. I needed, I need to immediately leave this room, <laughs> you know, like, like whenever it started, I would just, I'd just go and I need to move around and I need to, uh, but there was also, there was also quite a bit of, uh, self-talk like, you know, you're, you're not a good person, you know, you're going to end up like your dad, things like that, that would help contribute to those <laughs> general, those, those general panic attacks. Uh, but it was something that I could feel coming on for a while it had a bit of a head to it so oh that's awesome yeah so that was one of the one of the i don't know i guess good things about this whole thing was that i could uh, feel it and then i could adapt my um coping strategies to kind of head those off before it before it uh, broke out big time because a lot of people with anxiety feel like they got hit by a two by four yeah and don't see it coming there's no um you know, what precipitates it and they don't know. And so actually that is kind of a blessing that if you're going to have them, at least you know they're coming. Yeah. And it was odd because they didn't start off that way. Uh, from what I remember, um, at the very least I wasn't, I hadn't identified the triggers or signals at that point. Uh, but later on in my teenage years, I was able to kind of help head those off. So you realize that stress is inevitable to some degree in your life, but where it's not inevitable, you can avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's my mindset now, like everything going, move, move forward, but, um, you know, try to do it as stress-free as possible. (laughs) So reading is one of the things I'm guessing kind of is a grounding, um, thing that you can do. What other things did you do to help calm yourself down? Um, I actually got into, um, a uh, bit of meditation. My my history of meditation is hit or, hit or miss, but um, for the last 10, 15 years or so, um, off and on, I go back to that. Uh, breathing is the big one. Uh, because when my when my panic attacks would hit, it's like my lungs would just 
shut off, <laughs> you know, so, and that contributes to it. And I have from my childhood asthma, I have, I have a terrible phobia of um, not being able to breathe because I remember, I remember asthma attacks. Uh, so that certainly didn't help when that, when that popped up during the panic attacks. Um, but uh, reading is, I think really the main thing that helped with that because when I, I'm comforted by knowledge and when, when I don't understand something, the more I know about it, um, the better I feel about it. I think the more, the more equipped I, would, I am to, to handle it. And using that strategy, I was able to, uh, to really help myself out. So did you, you read a lot about anxiety? A lot, yeah. yeah. And all of the subsidiary stuff, like everything, everything in uh, you know, parallel to it. And you haven't had any stress management medication or anxiety medication for over 10 years now. Yep. Which, so you've, you're really able to manage it on your own, which is phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, support systems are something that I didn't realize I needed back when I was a teenager, but it helps having family. And, um, my, my wife, Lauren, who is my rock, she's fantastic. Um, and when I'm, she's able to, we've been together for 10 years and when she sees me starting to freak out, she's, she's got my back. When you're the, I'm the person that doesn't have the anxiety with people that do have it. And I think sometimes we can see it better. We see it coming almost better than you could see it coming. So I think so. I think I've learned my own coping mechanisms to be with people that have anxiety issues. Yeah. And, and that's a great, that's a great tool to be able to help calm someone down. Yeah. And it's helped me wonders. I mean, I can do, I can help, I, I can, I have coping skills independently and it helps that my wife is super awesome and helpful in that situation as well. <laughs> she is pretty awesome. I would agree with you on that one. <laughs> so, um, with reading and that was all through high school and everything, huh? Yeah. Okay. Now, grandpa, grandpas are older than dads and us. So yes. tell me what happened with grandpa. Cause you're a kid in sixth grade, you're diagnosed with this anxiety disorder. You're on medication off and on. And grandpa's the rock. Mom's awesome though. Oh, mom's amazing. I love mom's my mother. Amazing. She, I, and she is, she's yeah. the second part of my inspiration for who I am today. Like working, working to better the lives of people with disabilities her and my brother are the reasons why I do what I do. You know what? Let's jump in and talk about her real quick before we talk about grandpa. She was born, you said, um, upside down. So she was breached in the hallway in an LA hospital three months premature. Yeah. So um, basically that. I mean, she, she was born in a really busy LA hospital. My grandmother had her in the hallway and uh, she came out backwards. And cerebral palsy, the 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 idea behind it is that oh it's 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 a birth defect it's uh it's a disability things like that um it's not it it turns into a disability but it is not a birth defect it is it's an acquired disability uh from lack of oxygen to the brain um primarily during birth and that's what happened to my mother it's because she her body was ready to start breathing and she was still halfway in the birth canal Right. And people though, I, I mean, I'm still trying to understand that. I have a couple of friends that have cerebral palsy and it, it is, it's a, you're totally normal up until you have that lack of oxygen during yes. birth and then that's how you acquire it. Correct. So she and your brother, I mean, your brother's got spina bifida. 
Yep. Your mom's got cerebral palsy and they never let that stop them. Oh, never. And uh, I'm lucky, they, or they're lucky in the fact that, that it never impacted any of their physicality. Um, yeah. Uh, my brother, my brother is still going strong. Uh, my mother is starting to have um, side effects from just the strain on like cerebral palsy is not a degenerative disease, but, uh, or at least, I mean, doctors will call it a non-degenerative uh, neuromuscular disorder, but the wear and tear on your body that having that uh, diagnosis um, does, I mean, it, it wears your body down. Like if you, if you think about uh, having every single muscle in your body tense. Um, how long can you hold that? Not very long, um, because our our muscles get tired, uh, they get sore, things like that. My mother's body has been tense for fifty six years, and that starts to tear muscles down. It you know, and so she's yeah. She, so she's using a wheelchair now, but um, but when I was younger, it never impacted her at all. And she and for the most part, it still she still doesn't let it impact her now. She's, she's in her, her little wheelchair and she zips around and uh, she's got a really good outlook. My, my grandparents set her up to be um, a mentally very healthy person. Which is far better than physically healthy, I think. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because physical health can, it, you know, you, an accident, something can happen at any point. So Yeah. And quite honestly, there wasn't a lot they could do back in the 60s and 70s about my mother's physical condition. So they may as well beef her up mentally. Right. And now your brother with spina bifida, what, what does he have to use for support for that? He's, he's fully able to ambulate by him by himself with no, no supports or anything like that, but he does have a hole in his spine uh, because of the spina bifida. So uh, there is always the risk of like impacts to his spine causing more damage than, than a typical person's spine uh, would take if they were hit. Um, there's, you know, the concern of later in life, maybe some, uh, nerve damage, you know, just some, just d nerve degradation, things like that. Um, and those are all things that could come and nothing we can predict at the moment. Um, it's just something that mentally we just need to be prepared for. And they both kind of had the mindset and you've adopted the mindset that, cause these are pretty big disabilities or they can be, but they didn't let those run their life. Oh, never. They no. ran their life with them. Yeah, I mean, my my siblings and I grew up in a construction yard because, like I said, my grand my grandparents ran a construction company. So, I mean, we were always running and climbing up and down construction equipment. And um, you know, at one point, my my brother and I, uh, you know, we you know we'd have sword fights with big pieces of rebar. You know, he's <laughs> yeah, just a typical typical uh, young male thing to do, I guess. <laughs> but. That never let him, it never stopped him. Like he was, my brother's the life of the party wherever he goes. And, uh, and cognitively it actually affected him very little. Um, he had a seizure in utero, um, but that's about it. So, I mean, he actually, we have an MRI uh, from his brain that there's a dark spot that his, uh, part of his brain is actually dead, but it's uh, the doctors, his neurologist when he was little said that parts of his brain's actually rewired itself. So brains are amazing first of all, <laughs> but, uh, he still has that MRI scan. Um, just to, he, he loves it cause he's, it makes him feel like he's special, which he is. Right. Which yeah. is amazing. So where do you think a lot of the stress came from when you were a kid? Was your dad being gone or knowing that they had these disabilities that could affect them? Uh, I was always a worrier. Um, 
so look, I mean, looking back, I, I can tell I was, I, I can tell I was always a worrier. So yeah, I mean, worrying about my mom and my brother and, um, and the fact that, you know, later on in life, uh, by the time I hit the sixth grade, I had kind of figured out what my dad was doing. Uh, so everything just kind of compounded on itself. Um, I think in, in one giant cesspool of stress and, uh, which, which ultimately resulted in where I, where I ended up. And it is the personality too. You're right. If you were like a sweet, shy kid, stuff was going to impact you more than another personality. Yeah. So you have good coping mechanisms. You're growing up and um, you've got great role models <laughs> and not so great role models. And <laughs> yeah, tell me, let's talk about grandpa. Okay. Um, so grandpa Charlie, he was my dad and that's kind of the long and short of it. He, um, taught me what he felt, you know, or who, who, who he felt men should be. Um, you know, he taught me a lot of responsibility. He right off the bat, he taught me responsibility was his big thing because he wanted everybody accountable. Um, he was the toughest guy I think I'll ever know. And, um, he was just, I mean, he was just wonderful. Like my, he, uh, yeah, <laughs> he, he um, owned his own company and you saw he that did. he owned, he owned, he owned his own company. He actually um, inherited it from, he, he took it from his father um, because my great grandpa Delmar, he um, was far more interested in um, the perks of having all the money from the construction company than actually running the company. Uh, so my, my grandfather and his brother took it from him to run it so they could just let their my, my great grandfather and my great grandmother just kind of reap the rewards for starting it. Um, and then they moved up here with it. So yeah, it was very successful and, um, he was able to kind of do what he wanted. I mean, the man loved NASCAR. So he, he bought a plot of land up in Mount house and opened the Western West, the West coast biggest dirt track. Uh, he, he always cared for his family. Like we didn't ever, we didn't have a lot of money, but we didn't ever want for anything as, as the, as far as the grandchildren went. And, uh, I think his, that toughness, like he never went to a doctor and you just kind of, when you get hurt, you rub some dirt in it and move on. And, uh, that was his mentality. And I think that kind of led to ultimately what I feel was him dying far too early because he, uh, he didn't go to the doctor ever really. And, um, he ended up with, uh, colon, uh, lung cancer, which metastasized into his colon. And by the time anyone knew anything was wrong, uh, the doctor said, you're at stage four, you have three months. And uh, six months later, he passed um, right before my high school graduation, which he was super, super looking forward to. Um, that was hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was right around the time that I had stopped taking the meds kind of cold turkey as well. So I think I'm, I was I'm happy that I was able to have those um, those coping skills to deal with that stress. Um, and I had some good friends at the time to help me through it as well, as long as well as my family. Um, but that was rough. It's still rough. It's even I mean, 10 years later. I would have thought that, well, shit, I mean, you think this, I would hope that this thing, that, that it gets better, but 
you still miss him. I mean, it's not as, it's not as on the surface, but you still miss the person. Yeah. You just learn how to live your life while you miss them. Yeah. Yeah. So you actually went to college and where did you meet your wife? Um, I met my wife uh, right after I had graduated high school. So, um, which again is also one of my biggest, one of my biggest regrets about him passing away is because he would have loved my wife. Like, I think they would have gotten along splendidly. Um, but I, I met her through a mutual friend in high school who moved from Dayton to Gardnerville and she was going to high school in Gardnerville, uh, Nevada. And, uh, um, we just, we, we met each other. And for me, I was like, I've never really had any other sorts of relationships outside of, um, my, my wife. And the second I saw her, my first thought was, I, I want that one. And, and that was, that was it ever since. I mean, uh, you know, I chased her around for about nine months and we finally got together, which, and it's been wonderful ever since. Like she's the best thing about me. That's pretty amazing. So you went to college and I want to do a massive shout out because you were the first one in your family to graduate with a bachelor's degree. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, there wasn't, uh, the expectation was that you were going to jump into the family business, which was construction. And there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with construction. And, um, after my grandfather passed away, the family kind of imploded because everybody wanted a piece which, you know, I've, I've, you know, interacting with other families and stuff that have had the same similar issues is actually astoundingly common among families where their patriarch dies. Um, so the construction company fell apart because various aunts and uncles and cousins sort of ripped it apart. And my grandmother just said, I'm done. So she sold off all the assets um, and didn't want anything to do with it anymore because it was just causing too much strife. Um, like it was at the, it was to the point where my brother and I walked into a room in my grandmother's house where, um, a bunch of my cousins and, uh, one of my aunts were talking about what they were going to do with my mother as far as like putting her in a assisted living home and shit like that. Um, so they could get pieces of what was coming to her. It got bad, very, very bad. So, um, yeah, so obviously, um, I didn't want real. I didn't want a lot to do with that. So I was one of the first family members as well to move out of Mount House because everybody was there. So that I, was another one of my questions. Who else is there? Who's there now? In Mount House? Yeah. Everybody. I mean, nobody. Like my cousins are still out there in Dayton, and I mean they've spread out a tiny bit towards like Dayton and Carson and things like that, but they're still all out there. I have one cousin who also lived in Henderson, Nevada, when I was living in Las Vegas. Um, he's about 15 years older than me, so we didn't really interact a lot. Um, I didn't grow up with him. Um, but then he and his wife just actually moved up to um, Washington, I believe. Yeah, he's, he's high up in the, police, um, in, the, in the police force up in Washington. So your family all kind of just stayed put and nobody leaves, nobody, nobody leaves the family farm. Yeah, so that was tricky because a lot of my family didn't want, they, they kind of felt resentful i guess that i left they because they they took it as a personal insult of uh, you're leaving the family and to an extent i think it was um but i needed to go out so my, lauren lauren my wife and i and we we just left we moved down to vegas and 
uh, I had an opportunity because the organization I was working for at the time, um, I used to do uh, 24 hour, I, I used to manage 24 hour assisted living homes for adults with disabilities. And the organization that I worked for had a satellite branch in Carson City, which I worked for, but they had their main branch in Las Vegas. And they needed some work done on some homes down in Vegas and they knew who I was and the work that I did. And they said, hey, come on down and help out with some of the homes down here. So I took that opportunity and jumped. So we lived down there for about five years. Um, it, was, it was great. And I you got your bachelor's degree then? No, so yeah, so sorry, getting back to that. My, no, my, wife, right. my wife got her bachelor's degree in Las Vegas. She, she graduated from UNLV, um, but I took the long way, I guess, because <laughs> I worked, um, I, I didn't have a ton of financial aid, anything like that. Um, I didn't have scholarships. Um, so I worked my way through college. Um, my wife had some family help. Um, she worked as well, but she had a lot of family help with that. Uh, so I actually just got my bachelor's degree uh, back in May of this year uh, through, U through UNR. Um, I was going to school down in Las Vegas through the community college down there. Mm -hmm. And I got my associate's degree down there and was able to get my bachelor's just recently in, in social work here in Northern Nevada. That's amazing. So, yeah. and you fell into it naturally because of your upbringing. Yeah. And I've, I've wanted to be a social worker since, uh, since about nine. Um, you know, there was that whole expectation in the family that you're going to help, help the grandparents out and join the construction team. And, but I, I knew early on that I didn't want to do that. Um, so what advice would you give for people who are, I mean, you've, we've covered a lot. We've covered, you know, <laughs> loss and uh, drug use, anxiety, um, multi-generations, just a, a lot of stuff. But with the anxiety and you're, I mean, you were put into a situation, it was actually a great family situation, but ended up with a lot of anxiety because of it. What advice would you give to people? You said you've meditated off and on and you read a lot, but what about the negative self-talk? How to kind of get over that? Yeah, because you touched on that earlier, and, and I think that's huge for a lot of people. The The biggest competition is looking in the mirror. Yeah. That, I think, is probably the biggest struggle um, that still kind of carries forward. Um, and I think mindfulness, like I have ample evidence that I am not a terrible human being, and I am not going to be a drug addict, and I'm not going to be x y and z and all those other things so i think surrounding yourself with the reminders of why that internal talk isn't true i think is the biggest thing um i think that the when you get into those states where you're you're so doubtful and lost and struggling we we tend as people to self-isolate and we need to resist that uh, because that's something that I tend to do naturally as well. And I think that would just kind of drive it deeper. And I, I, I know some people who went so deep that they couldn't, they couldn't climb back out. And you shouldn't end up in that space. Like everybody has support systems. Everybody has people they can reach out to. Um, and we can be our own self-support mechanism. Uh, I mean, when you hear that, uh, that, un, uh, that, that voice in your head say, you're not going to make it, you're a bad person, you know, you're fat, you're not worth it. Um, we're, 
we should be cognizant to fight fire right back at that voice and say, no, I'm not because of this. I think um, people don't realize that if, if someone came up to you and said that to you, you'd be pissed off and tell right? them to screw themselves. But we're, we're the worst. Yeah, yeah. We're the, we're always going to be our harshest critics. Right. We just need to move past it. So you would, it's a matter of recognizing it and reaching out for the help that you need. Yeah. And kind of being the advocate for yourself. Like we know each other, we, we know ourselves best. And uh, that when that self-talk starts to creep in, you just got to, you know, flip at the bird and tell it to go the hell away. Right. Yeah. And, and I know that's hard for people, but um, you can use your support systems to back you up to getting to that mindset. It's not as hard as allowing the voice to continue though. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Devin, thank you so much for coming oh, yeah. on and sharing your story. <laughs> Holy cow. What a story. Well, <laughs> it's, amazing. it's a privilege knowing you. I'm glad that our paths crossed and that we were able to get together and do this. Yeah, it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you for having me on and Absolutely. Being my very first interview. <laughs> Yay! Cherries popped. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.